Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting-edge science on cannabis that's typically only found in academic journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We are back for season two, and we still have so much to learn about cannabis, so expect plenty of new content on that. But we're also going to be having a wider range of conversations this season and talking about some of the new research on plant-based medicines and psychedelics like psilocybin, ketamine, and ayahuasca. We also have some great interviews with anthropologists, and we're going to be exploring some of the societal and cultural elements surrounding the production and the use of cannabis and other alternative types of medicine. Today we are featuring Dr. Mark Bronstein, who is known as the Cannabis Psychiatrist. Dr. Bronstein runs a private psychiatry practice in Durango, Colorado, where he specializes in the treatment of ADHD, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and substance abuse. He earned his medical degree at Nova Southeastern University College of Osteopathic Medicine. In this episode, we talk about using cannabis to treat a spectrum of mental health disorders and using cannabis also as a means of healing trauma. We talk about developing alternatives to uh, many of the pharmaceutical drugs out there and the antidepressants. And we also talk about ways of shifting the paradigm of mental health treatment from moving towards um, taking a pill to using cannabis or using a psychedelic experience to really go deep within your psyche and address the root of a problem. We also talk about some of the newer research on ketamine treatments and what you can expect if you book a psychedelic session with Dr. Bronstein. So tell me more about your background and how you became the cannabis psychiatrist. I've been a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist for about the past 25 years. I was fortunate to be able to move to Colorado in 2002 when I finished my training as a psychiatrist, uh, partly so I could practice in a state where cannabis was legal for medical purposes. I was trained in a model of traditional psychopharmacology, treating mental illness with medications, uh, multiple medications in combinations with each other, then medications added to combat the side effects of other medications. And I was watching my patients over time and not getting improvements with these additional medications added, becoming more numb and experiencing more side effects, uh, especially in kids. Uh, I was trained that all mood swings in kids were bipolar disorder and and to put kids on a, antipsychotics and mood stabilizers and antidepressants and stimulants and, and these combinations. And these patients of mine were still ending up in the hospital or in restraints. And um, what I found uh, when these patients were turning 18 and they were able to stop taking their medications and start utilizing cannabis, I noticed a lot of these people started becoming more stable. In fact, more stable than I'd ever seen them before. Mm-hmm. And and that really started opening my eyes up more to the uh, validity of using cannabis as a psychiatric medication. Uh, in, in psychiatry, we were trained to assess the efficacy of a medication based upon someone's subjective response to it, right? So like, how did, the pro, how did the increase in Prozac work? And the patient would tell you, and you would listen to them and adjust it based upon that. Uh, however, with cannabis, as psychiatrists, we were trained that it was a drug of abuse. And if someone said they felt good on it, that was not okay. Uh, it was really perplexing to me. How come I was listening to how patients felt about antipsychotics, but <clears throat> I couldn't listen to them about cannabis? Mm-hmm. And I really felt that was wrong. And I started listening to them and um, really got to the place now where instead of prescribing psychiatric drugs, I use plant medicine to help people get off of psychiatric drugs when appropriate. 
and I uh, have noticed that my patients are a lot more stable and less toxic. Yeah. So how long ago was that when you did see this shift or when you did make this shift in your practice to, to go from using been, these pharmaceutical drugs yeah. to, to cannabis or plant-based medicines? It's been gradual over the last 18 years um, and, and really since 2010 working on really minimizing psychiatric drugs and utilizing wellness protocols and plant-based protocols. Mm -hmm. Do you still think psychiatric drugs have a place in treatment? They, they do for some people. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of psychiatrists that will prescribe them if people want them. I have a lot of people I can refer to that will do that. However, unfortunately, there is a shortage, a severe shortage of psychiatrists who are knowledgeable about prescribing cannabis. Right. So do you think that there is a place, um, and maybe we'll get into this more later, but is there any place to kind of combine the two in treatment or is it better to, to choose one and, and stick with it depending on your I, condition? I think it's best not to be extremely dogmatic about this mm -hmm. and to, to look at everything in a risk benefit ratio and decide what makes the most sense for you. Yeah, I have a lot of patients who are and I've seen a lot of people who utilize psychiatric medications and plant medicine. I would say that the, the main benefit, if you are going to take them in combination, is that you'll be able to use as least psychiatric medications and then have the least risk of toxicity as possible. Also, um, hopefully you'll be utilizing more wellness protocols in combination with cannabis. And that will allow you to take less psychiatric medications. Because in a lot of ways, if you can do things for yourself that are healthy, that's going to have natural improvements on your mood and anxiety. If you eat better, if you exercise, if you sleep better, if you get along better with your partner, if you read books, if you listen to music, right? So you have all these pro-healthful things that can also affect brain chemistry. Uh, how, however, the the pharmacology industry and psychiatry has told us, you know, to, to not put as much emphasis on personal responsibility for health and wellness, instead to take a medication and feel better. And we really don't want to do this with plant medicine also, right? So mm -hmm. the key is when you're going to use plant medicine to use it intentionally and in combination with wellness protocols, mm -hmm. not just to take a pill to get better. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to me that there is a lot of guidance out there for people who do want to use cannabis in this medicinal way or to treat certain mental health conditions. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about what, what exactly you do through your practice and what kind of patients do you see? I see people of all ages. I see children up to late seniors, right? So everyone from there you know, below 10 to above 90. Um, you know, as a child psychiatrist, we oftentimes, unfortunately, start treating mental illness in a pre-grade school age. Uh, and, and now sometimes I have parents who will come to me um, for their children with autism or PTSD or seizures and, and would like to try cannabis as first-line medication before some of the other treatments. Uh, That's as, as yeah. Well that must be a big as... shift mm -hmm, from from what yeah what from what used to happen, which was probably a kid trying ten different medications before they were in high school. Huge shift in the last decade, uh, and it's really cool because it, it's not just uh, liberal and, and open minded and, and progressive people who are bringing their kids into try cannabis. Now you see a more conservative population um, that are trying this first line. It's very exciting. Yeah, no, I think it really does bleed across the party lines in that way because, of course, mental illness does not discriminate and people need treatment. And they don't. And, and so like medications for severe childhood mental disorders don't always work great. And what we do as psychiatrists is oftentimes tranquilizing kids to, to minimize symptoms. And um, it doesn't work great. And I have seen really fantastic results with medical cannabis um, without needing combinations of three different medications causing mm -hmm. severe side effects. 
Mm-hmm. So can you walk us through how you um, treat a patient? So a new patient comes to your clinic, and I know you do cannabis-assisted psychotherapy sessions, um, but you also make prescriptions outside of that. So, so can you kind of describe what your treatment protocol is within your clinic when a new patient arrives? Sure. So it's really individualized and based upon the patient. Someone who's never had cannabis before is going to get a different protocol than someone who has been using cannabis. So let's talk about someone who's cannabis naive. I think that those are the the patients that we need to to be the most careful with, right? First of all, they oftentimes will have pre-existing notions about cannabis and anxiety and fear about cannabis. Um, that anxiety and fear that you have about the anxiety that cannabis is going to create can create its own symptoms. Right. So really to reassure them and to start them off very slowly. The perfect place to start is just CBD. And we can reference many studies that have been done to look at the dosing regimens that have been used in studies. Uh, I've been using a regimen of you take the person's weight in pounds, divide by two to get their weight in kilograms roughly, and then you divide that in three. So let's say someone weighs 160 pounds, 165 pounds, then that's 75 kilograms. They should be taking 25 milligrams of CBD three times a day. Uh, and, and if you look at most of the studies that were done, it was, it was about this dose. So it's about one milligram per kilogram in three divided doses. Now, no one's going to have a negative psychoactive experience on CBD. They're going to try this. Hopefully, we'll get some benefit. Not going to have any side effects. And then they're going to be eased into it, right? Now, usually it works, CBD works best with THC also. But, but just getting people in the door, getting people who are cannabis naive or cannabis anxious in the door to, to try a cannabis product with CBD is great. Then they're, com- they're a little bit more comfortable. They're not as afraid. And then if you want to add in THC... Uh, in Colorado, we have such great products and such great testing that as a physician, I can accurately dose someone with, let's say, a quarter milligram of THC. And if I give them this a, a ratio of, say, 25 milligrams of CBD and 0.25 milligrams of THC, that's a 100 to 1 ratio, and you can really be assured that someone is not going to have a negative psychoactive experience. Now, when you take THC and CBD together, you are going to have a more profound medical effect. Uh, you're going to have better coverage at both the CB1 and CB2 receptors, and you're going to have more efficacy. Uh, we could talk a little bit about what those receptors are if, if you guys, if, if you would like also to review the endocannabinoid system a little bit. Yeah, sure. Let's go into that. So we, yeah, the, endo, the endocannabinoid system is a natural system that we all have in our bodies. So we all produce natural cannabinoids, just like we all produce natural opiates. Um, The body was made to produce cannabis to do things in us like help treat pain, help regulate stress response. Now, we know that when people experience trauma and stress, their ability to produce cannabinoids on their own is reduced. And some people more than others the reduction in production of endogenous cannabinoids causes symptoms of anxiety, depression, stress. So if you can take exogenous cannabinoids, meaning cannabinoids that don't come from your system but come from the plant, then you can replace your internal ones that are missing binding to the different cannabinoid receptors in the body, 
helping to modulate your stress response. So during coronavirus, if you're in your house, you're afraid of what's going to happen. Your cortisol level is up. Your fight or flight response is, is up. If you use a little bit of cannabis during this time, it's actually can be thought of as a vaccine for PTSD. Because um, we, we know that if you utilize cannabis while experiencing traumatic events, your chance of, of getting PTSD afterwards will be less. Oh, that's interesting. So is there a way to measure the amount of endogenous cannabinoids that a person is producing? Or do we just look for these symptoms of depression and anxiety to, to kind of monitor that? On a research level, we can look at that. And we have looked at that. And that's how we know this. Uh, we, we've looked at people who have gone through the same uh, stress. Like, let's look at 9-11. Because uh, there, there's not a lot of... Uh, events where you can go out and study people who have been through the same stress. But they did that in 9-11. And, and you look at people who develop PTSD afterwards, and they had lower levels of endogenous cannabinoids than the ones who did not experience PTSD. And then we looked at people who experienced trauma, giving them cannabis while experiencing versus not, and, and saw that they had less too. Um, but again, this is not really practical for the, the person at home to guide their symptoms um, but you can follow it clinically and your doctor can meaning do you feel less anxious you know are you sleeping better less nightmares less less jumpiness less mm -hmm. less paranoia mm -hmm. yeah no I think that that's an interesting concept to use it as a PTSD vaccine because, you know, I think a lot of times it's it's always thought of as a, a retroactive treatment, but the reality is there's a lot we can do to kind of help ourselves move through traumatic experiences. It doesn't always have to necessarily be treatment a year later or six months later once we realize that it's still stuck in our brain. To absolutely. And then it's also not just about using cannabis as a medicine. It's not just about a biologic medicine. Uh, to reduce stress and PTSD. And that will work. But really what I try and get people to do is to tie their cannabis use to intentional pro-healthy activities. And now we're really going to reduce stress and you're really going to reduce your traumatic response. And what I mean mm -hmm. is when you use cannabis, if you can tie it to exercise or cooking dinner or, or meditating with your partner, all of those things will help too. Mm -hmm. I, I really want to get out of the biologic model of taking some of, of relying on taking something to get better. Uh, that, that's really a, a risk that we have with with plant medicine is, is falling into the, the narrative that always exists that already exists from big pharma. Yes, yes. And I, I definitely want to talk that talk about that more. Um, but first, could I know you offer these cannabis-assisted psychotherapy yeah. sessions. Um, so I, I really am curious about how you combine maybe this talk therapy with cannabis as medicine. And, and how does a cannabis psychotherapy session differ from traditional talk therapy or maybe cognitive behavioral therapy or these other models that, that we've seen? 100%. So cannabis is a psychedelic and that's how we're using it in psychotherapy. So similar to what everyone hears now about using psilocybin or ketamine to do psychedelic psychotherapy, we can utilize cannabis in this way too. Cannabis also acts on the 5-HC2A receptor like the other psychedelics. Um, and when used intentionally and ceremonially in the right set and setting, I have seen profound psychedelic experiences come out of cannabis like I've seen with DMT or psilocybin or any of the other allies. And how do you guide those sessions? So does that start with you making a recommendation, um, like a recommendation for a patient to, to consume, so a certain amount, um, and then you guide them through kind of their psychedelic experience? So let's... I'm going to start with a psychiatric evaluation 
first to make sure that this patient is safe and appropriate to have a psychedelic experience, meaning if someone's acutely psychotic or manic or dangerous to themselves or others, that needs to be further assessed before it's recommended, right? And then physiologically, does this person have a thyroid condition? Do they have a cardiac condition? Is there is there some reason that we don't want them to undergo this treatment because it might pose a medical risk? So let's say that someone psychiatrically and medically is clear to undergo a, a psychedelic treatment. Then you would look at their previous experiences with plant medicine or psychiatric drugs or cannabis and, and kind of look at their sensitivities and, and how they do overall with medicine mm-hmm. to, to figure out their dose and then kind of figure out what psychedelic is best for them. Sometimes I, I assign cannabis first. Sometimes I'll assign ketamine first. Uh, or depending upon the jurisdiction, it might be that they can take another medication. Like in Jamaica, someone could take psilocybin. So, How do you make that distinction? Yes, that's a good question. So cannabis is a great clearer for trauma. Found cannabis better for clearing trauma than, than the other psychedelics. So some ways if you're going to start psychedelic psychotherapy starting with cannabis to get the trauma out of the way so that they can go into some other work with some other medicines that's one reason to start other times um, physiologically cannabis is softer and gentler than the, than the other psychedelics and may and maybe this person is is more sensitive so it, it would make more sense in, in them to to use cannabis first mm-hmm and how long do these so how long do these sessions last and also if you really want to use cannabis as a psychedelic do you um do you have to change the typical dose that you would give a patient obviously if you want to have a psychedelic experience with it it's probably a different amount that you would take than if you're going to take it and go to work sure so i i've I've learned from daniel mcqueen at medicinal mindfulness who's my partner and he's come up with this blend of seven different cannabis profiles that we can get where we are in Boulder. But basically, it's it's getting cannabis across the different um, spectrum. So like a sativa, an indica, and a hybrid. Finding something that has a significant component of CBN, CBG, CBD. So really trying to create an extremely full-spectrum blend. But it's... so. A lot of this with cannabis is also about the set and setting, right? So it's not just about smoking a bowl and having a psychedelic experience. When we do, so there's intention put into choosing of the cannabis that you're going to have for this experience, right? So that's that's setting the intention in the set and setting, because you've gone off and you've got these different strains that you have this belief that, and this feeling that it's going to give you this experience. And then you blend them together again, ceremonially. We use a mortar and pestle uh, that's been, you know, that Daniel's been using for years. Uh, and so the energy uh, behind all those strains and all those journeys that came out of that mortar and pestle, that's going to add to the, the spirituality and the, and the mysticism of this journey. Uh, we, we often give thanks to the seven different directions north, the south, the east, the west, the past, the present, the future. And so in that manner, we believe in taking sacrament seven times. Right. But there's going to be very a bit, meaning uh, inhaling, uh, vaporizing or smoking. I'm sorry. And so there's (laughs) a a large ceremonial Mm -hmm. um, component to this that you can't necessarily replicate by saying take five milligrams or 10 milligrams someone with a a really um low tolerance can can take the full seven hits and and have a full psychedelic experience someone with a really high tolerance might only take one hit and go into that place because a a lot of it is going to be based upon your ability to access states of altered consciousness, right? Some people are experienced travelers if they've done their own breath work or transcendental meditation before and they've experienced these things. They know what a, they, they might have had a psychedelic experience without 
plant medicine before, and then other people are not familiar with these places at all. Yes. We, uh, things that we do to in, encourage this, right? So it's about that set and setting, taking that place, making it feel ceremonial, have it, you know, processing their intention, right? So before they go into this journey, talking about what they want to get out of the journey, what they've been working on, and really setting that intention, taking a lot of time, at least an hour to talk about that. And then when you go into your journey, having it, it's about an hour and a half. And, and we have, you're, you're wearing an eye shade. So that you're not having to deal with visual sensation to to weed out your wearing that eye shade allows you to really focus on your on your third eye and, mm -hmm. and to to have visual hallucinations and to go inward. And, uh, I'd imagine to really go absolutely. on your own inward journey instead of see you know looking around and seeing what's happening in the room. Yeah, because and then we have music that you're listening to that's going to fill your brain. And that's going to be time to this journey, like a, going into it, being there, coming down. And there isn't really talking. So compared to a traditional psychotherapy session, when you're having this hour and a half long journey, your therapist isn't talking to you. They're observing you. Mm -hmm. um, mo most of their <clears throat> consciousness is going to be on you, but also self-observation self as well. Mm -hmm. and, and allowing the patient to kind of move, move through their process, uh, let go of their trauma release their trauma and then yeah. afterwards you know that that's where the, the the real uh grist begins is what they've experienced what they've seen what they've realized mm -hmm. having them verbalize that talk about that and then integrate it it's the integration therapy that's key with this yeah, I think that's so interesting. But first of all, I want to say I think it's a really fascinating approach because there seems to be so much trust, trust in the patient, but also trust in the plant that it will do the job that it needs to do. It's wonderful because I, I think that these plant medicines can be, a, they're like a through way to your subconscious, stuff that people will sit on the couch and talk to me for years without getting to. Because mm -hmm. their defenses and their neuroses won't allow them to go there and talk about it. Psychedelics will get you up to speed in 20 minutes. Uh, you can't help but look at it. And that's what a lot of people are afraid of. When they talk about having a bad trip, they're talking about looking at their shadow places. But in a safe therapeutic setting, that's the money. You, you look at those places, you can develop insights, and then if you want, you can change and learn. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've seen people sit on the couch for years and never look at themselves in a way that psychedelics show you without choice. Yeah, and I do think that there is this possibility too for after the psychedelic experience, it's a lot easier to enter that place again. So once you've once you've had that, you know, the inhibition removed and you're able to enter that place and and whatever that might be, whether it's revisiting a trauma or revisiting, you know, your childhood or um, whatever that whatever that experience that you you visit, then it, it is easier um, to, to revisit that place without the psychedelics or, or without the cannabis. Is, is that something that you found in your practice? Absolutely. You've been there. You've seen it. You're not afraid of it. You know where that the work is, and you're, you can go back there if you want. That muscle memory is there. Yeah, so, so let's talk about the integration, which I, I think is very overlooked um, when people self-treat with cannabis or psychedelics and, and, and I've been guilty of this, you know, you have a great, you have a great experience whether that's on cannabis or, or on mm -hmm. psilocybin and then you have all of these interesting insights and then, you know, the next day or, or a week later, you kind of forget and you go back to normal. You just go back to living how you were living. Um, so what are ways that, that, or what are practices that you use um, to integrate these realizations and these insights that we can gain from these plant-based experiences and, and actually make make changes in our lives. It's interesting you ask. It's not just you. I was talking to someone yesterday who was telling me how she has profound, you know, she's had profound realizations on, on psilocybin and uh, very powerful and then for, forgets about it. <laughs> Yeah, and and the the magic and the work that was started uh, is flummoxed and and doesn't go anywhere. So, 
you're right. The integration is key. You're, you're not going to change without it. Uh, you might have changes in your neurochemistry and neuroplasticity because of these medications, but if you don't keep working on those positive changes, you're going to slump back to where you were. You can think about it like working out, um, meaning if, if you if you go out and you get a bolus of exercise, it is going to be good for you. But if you don't continue to work on those muscles, you're going to go back to where you were. So what is integration and, and how do you do that? So, for example, let, let's say that you have a vision of unity or interconnectedness dur during a psychedelic journey. Well, in, incorporating that and integrating that thought into your process and your actions on a daily basis. So realizing that you're connected to the rest of the world and what you put out is going to have an effect on what comes back to you and what goes all the way around and thinking about that consciously. So it's about conscious work every day, doing your homework and thinking and taking those messages that the medicine gave you and putting them into action. Like you actually have to do something. You can't just, it's not just going to get done to you. But the more you practice that and the, the more you practice and you integrate, the more it will become part of you and the closer you will get to being healed. But the closer you'll get, right? So this idea of healing and, and being done, uh, I think that's, that's kind of a misnomer. It's, mm -hmm. it's an, as, an asym, asympto, uh, asymptotic um, experience, I would say. Not sure if you're allowed to talk about um, your patients, but have you seen, do you have any like powerful stories um, about, you know, or a specific narrative about um, how, how a patient or how a person has used this? has used and whether that's cannabis or, or one of these other psychedelics to, to really make active or proactive changes in their lives. Yeah. I have a, a, a patient recently who's had a combination of cannabis and ketamine treatments. Uh, when, when she came to me, she was on multiple different controlled substances from her doctor, meaning, uh, benzodiazepines and amphetamines and her intention was not uh, about stopping those addictive drugs when she came in um, but over the course of of a month or two of treatment she kind of gradually just stopped using them and uh, that that's just late I, I had that one recently it was my last patient before corona time and um, was really, really impressed and blown away because we do use these for addictions when people are consciously working on addictions. But, but to watch how psychedelics can just decrease people's interest in abusing certain psychoactive substances is just amazing to me. Have you seen any um, have you seen any patients that might struggle with addiction or alcoholism have successful results in using 100 yeah a hundred percent and so I mean I see people every week with cannabis that tell me cannabis saved their lives from addictions specifically alcohol um, as well as opiates methamphetamine cocaine sex gambling the list goes on but I see former alcoholics, every week who say cannabis saved their life uh the 12-step programs around the durango area where, where i mostly practice and am based uh welcome people that use medicinal cannabis uh they they see it as medicine not different than other psychiatric medications um you know i i think that on some level part of human nature to seek an expansion or an escape or an altered form of consciousness and and cannabis i think is the the least harmful and possibly most productive of, of all the psychoactive substances mm -hmm. uh it's really interesting the biggest referral 
source to me around Durango for medical cannabis is actually probably the probation department. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> yeah, for people that, you know, oftentimes will get a DUI or have problems with domestic violence or something that's related to alcohol, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be allowed to drink anymore, right? They're going to get tested. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a nice time for them where they can't drink for an extended time, where they can look at cannabis as medication from a harm reduction standpoint and, and maybe make that change to, to get out of that negative pattern of, a, of abuse with alcohol. Not to say they can't exist with cannabis. And I know you wanted to talk about that as well. That feels like a story that you would hear maybe in Amsterdam or, or Portugal, but not in the U.S. So that no, is blow, a it, story. Yeah. It blows me away. I mean, I, I, I love the irony of it, mm-hmm. right? Because we spent so much time locking people up for cannabis infractions and probation spent so much time sending people back to jail on cannabis violations. Yes. Now that they can recognize it as, as an, a helpful medicine. It really makes me pleased. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of room in the uh, substance abuse treatment world to shift its view on cannabis. I, I currently still work at a uh, substance abuse treatment facility, and unfortunately, I do see a lot of patients referred for cannabis use disorders. Not to say they don't exist, but I think that cannabis use disorders are oftentimes a symptom of, of something deeper that's underlying that if you don't issue, if you don't address and focus just on quitting cannabis, you're never going to get to the root of the issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do want to circle back to that, um, sure. but but first I do want to I do want to talk about ketamine um, because yeah. you mentioned that briefly, and I know you also do these ketamine assisted psychotherapy sessions. So for for listeners who are not familiar, could you explain what ketamine is and how this session works, and what kind of patient this treatment might be useful for? So, ketamine. Uh, is an ana- it came out as an anesthetic in the mid-60s. Uh, so PCP or angel dust came out in the early 60s as an animal tranquilizer. Uh, with, and, but there were no human, no human uh, reasons for it to be given. And then PCP was then synthesized down to, to ketamine. And ketamine was using as animal tranquilizer, but we also found out it can be used as a tranquilizer in humans. Uh, they, they did a study, I think, in 1965 on 100 prisoners. Uh, at the time, that a lot of drug studies were done on prisoners, and it was safe, and it was an anesthetic. And, and then in the Vietnam War, ketamine became widely used on the field uh, as an anesthetic because it was safe. Uh, you could have one soldier inject another soldier with it, safely anesthetize them and not worry about their pulse or blood pressure getting out of control or unstable. And I think that thought is what is allowing us now, all of what, 50 years later, to be utilizing ketamine in an outpatient office setting by psychiatrists safely. But it's taken a long time, right? It's taken 50 years to get to where we are now. Uh, Ketamine was not used for mental health purposes for many years. However, in the early 2000s, a study came out showing that it was effective in depression. And then psychiatrists slowly started using it, really starting in about 2010, in low-dose sub-psychedelic IV infusion models where someone with treatment-resistant depression, meaning depression that hadn't gotten better with two different medications, was given a course of six ketamine treatments over a three to four to five week period, and they were better. They didn't get any therapy with this. Uh, They just had Six doses of medicine where they went into a doctor's office, sat in maybe a dark room, listened to some music, uh, felt a little bit uh, buzzed maybe, and left. And there is one group in in specific out of the Ketamine Training Institute with Dr. Phil Wolfson, uh, and, and that's who I trained under. And they began using ketamine in higher doses where it was a psychedelic. So it can act just like psilocybin or DMT or cannabis 
or any of the other psychedelics when dosed properly. And when you take it that way, it really opens up the possibilities of treatment. So you're not just getting this medication that's doing something to your brain chemistry and making you feel better, but you have a transformative, transcendent, huge psychedelic experience where you have these perceptual realizations and then you can integrate them, right? So it's an integration therapy that's key. Mm-hmm. We haven't had studies yet looking at the efficacy of the psychedelic therapy over the um, sub-psychedelic clinical doses. And that's what I'm really excited to, to look at, to see what effect the psychedelic experience itself has, not just the medicine. Yeah. And what kind of patient would you, um, I, I know you said, especially for a patient who is um, maybe newer to, to using drugs, you might recommend a cannabis psychotherapy s- s- session first, but, but how do you identify um, a patient who, who is a good candidate for this? So most of the time it's easy because patients are going to be coming to you requesting this and then you just have okay. to make sure they're appropriate. Um, mm-hmm. Now, what we really need to do is train physicians who aren't psychedelically minded when to recommend this to their patients, right? So that's mm-hmm. so physician education on this end is going to be really important. How do we get psychiatrists who aren't hip to this treatment to know when to recommend it? And that's where I think you know, the, the good folks at Johns Hopkins and, and NYU that are creating these academic protocols so that doctors have an algorithm, right? Because now they know, a doctor can know, oh, someone failed Prozac, then they failed Cymbalta. Well, the next step would be uh, intranasal doses of esketamine. So if you can make it algorithmically appropriate, then the doctors will listen. And I think this is what's missing with cannabis. Doctors don't have an idea of when to go to cannabis. You know, mm-hmm. um, there there aren't those algorithms set up and commonly recognized yet. Uh, now they are going to be recognized and set up with psychedelics because of the FDA's involvement in these clinical trials, right? So, for instance, MAPS is doing all this fantastic work with MDMA. It's going to probably be available for prescription in 2022, uh, you know, with uh, psilocybin looking at 2023. When these things are going to be backed by pharma and approved and covered by insurances, we'll have algorithms so that the doctors will know when to try these because that's what psychiatrists do. They prescribe drugs. They prescribe this. They prescribe that. They follow these algorithms that were taught and learned and psychedelics will be incorporated into that. It's going to be slower with cannabis because we don't have that pharma push to make it happen, unfortunately or fortunately, depending Mm -hmm. upon how you look at it. Right, right. So when it comes to, obviously with cannabis, you know, you, you lead these assisted um, psychotherapy sessions, but patients are also using it outside of um, those sessions. With ketamine, is that something that you restrict just to these um, psychotherapy sessions or how often is it safe for patients to use or is it safe at all for them to use it without um, kind of this guidance or monitoring? God, that's such a good question. Uh, and it's something that I wrestle with because uh, the biggest barrier to access for these medications, I think, are figuring out how we can make them affordable. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're talking about journeys that, that take hours of time um, and need you know, observation for safety, how can we make that affordable for people. So trying to figure out what, what is a necessary amount of like observation by a physician versus what can someone do at home? Uh, I think that at least the first time you take a psychedelic, you should be observed by the doctor to make sure that physiologically for starters, you're okay. Like, um, that your, your, your heart rate's not increasing. Your blood pressure is not going up right? You're not aspirating on vomit. Like, let's make sure you can tolerate this medication. Let's make sure that you're not an outlier who's going to have a severe psychological reaction, need a medical intervention to bring them down. 
Um, and then we can talk about interventions to bring people down later. I, but, you know, so at least in my protocol, the physician is there the first time. And then uh, I'm able to also do the integration work, right? I can, you know, come up with what I think is my theory of what the patient needs to work on in integration. I can assign them homework and, and they can work on that. And then when they come back the next time and meet with my nurse, right? So then they'll be with an RN instead of me. Uh, it's just a much more affordable to sit with mm -hmm. an RN versus the physician. And I've already figured out the dosing. I know what's safe and that I can recommend that to my RN then who can administer the medication, watch the vital signs for me, contact me if necessary, contact 911 if necessary. But at the end of the day, um, the patient can, can afford that. And mm -hmm. then the RN can, can help with the integration, right? I can, I can write my plan of, of what the patient was going to think on and work on. And then they can work with an integration specialist after that. So after that first time I see them, I'm going to recommend a number more of treatments, right? Two to six treatments, kind of depending on the person, how severe they are and what they need to go on. But what you were asking me about is how many treatments? Are these things safe? You got to look at medication treatment. Everything's about the risks and the benefits of treatment, right? So ideally, is it healthy to take ketamine? No, like physically? No, it's a chemical. It's, it's not it's not great to put that into your body, but it's not great to feel depressed, right? Or to feel the symptoms of trauma and have increased cortisol. So if you have a medical condition where the risk of taking the medicine, which is very low, uh, is outweighed by the benefits, then, then by all means, try it. And then depending upon, you know, your response and how severe will determine how many more treatments or how often you'll need treatments, right? So, because oftentimes after you have this bolus of two to six treatments, you have your realizations, you're feeling better, you're on top of the world, it's great. Well, you know what? Life's going to happen, man. Six months, two months, one year is going to go by. You know, whatever you patterns you've been struggling with for 40 years or 30 or 50 or whatever it is, they aren't just going to disappear, right? Mm -hmm. And hopefully you've been doing your integration and you've been working Working on it, but the idea of having a tune-up periodically is very realistic within the realms of, of psychedelic medicine. But hopefully, those tune-ups and reminders occur less and less frequently over time, to the point where you can graduate, maybe, and and mm -hmm. not want a journey or or mm -hmm. only ceremonially journey every few years. Right? Mm -hmm. It depends on everybody's. <sighs> kind of personal experience. We have been circling around this topic, kind of this whole conversation. And and I think cannabis and, and psychedelics have potential to be such powerful medicine for healing trauma. But as with any substance, there, there comes a risk of abuse. And we uh, briefly talked about cannabis use disorder. And we actually have another podcast where we talk about um, some of the risks with higher potency products like um, you know, super concentrated THC oils and, you know, the, the potential for addiction that comes with that. Um, but, but be, beyond the addiction, which I think is a, is a more extreme risk that's really overstated with cannabis. I, I think there is potential for cannabis or, or any of these medicines to, to just become a way of, um, kind of numbing the pain or zoning out, you know, rather than really working through these issues and then integrating the experience. So, so what are, what are your thoughts on this and what are the ways to ensure good habits with cannabis if you're using it to heal trauma and what are your guidelines, um, for people? Okay. I'd love, I'd love to talk about this. I'd actually like to jump back to something you mentioned just a moment ago about the dangers of, of high doses and the concentrates and whatnot. And that's oftentimes spoke about. But what's not spoken about with those high doses is that some people need them. This mm -hmm. is medicine. This is personalized medicine with different doses for different people. Doctors prescribe amphetamines in really high doses sometimes or benzos in really high doses or antipsychotics or antidepressants because some people have really severe symptoms. They're not one size fits all. Also, um, a tolerance to cannabis can develop. And, and so, but just because someone is requiring or dependent upon high dose cannabis around the clock 
we shouldn't pass judgment that they're they're abusing it necessarily because for that patient that high dose cannabis might be the difference between life and death mm-hmm. right so like thinking about this as life-saving medicine and so it maybe they are dabbing all day and their endocannabinoid system is is really full but they're staying out of the hospital they're not suicidal well you know what so be it again looking at the the risks and the benefits um but that isn't the the ideal situation right the ideal situation is is that people are able to maintain their symptoms on a, on an amount of cannabis and um not numb out uh, cannabis is different than a lot of other drugs of abuse because it's as much as people would like to numb with cannabis sometimes it just doesn't work that way cannabis can make you think more uh, it, it, so different than a lot like heroin, alcohol, benzos, it doesn't slow down your thinking, but actually turns you inwards and, and turns your mind on. Uh, so in that way, if someone is looking to numb out with cannabis, <clears throat> it's not the greatest. And that might be why they're chasing it and using really high doses because they're looking for an effect that just isn't going to come out of this medication. You know, all those stories we heard about your brain on drugs and, and how cannabis was going to dumb you down. We just don't, we're just not finding that. We see so many creative, intelligent, uh, artistic people whose minds are able to flourish under the effects of cannabis. And, and that's really where you're, I think the key comes to, to utilizing cannabis in a healthy, positive, intentional way. Uh, because if, if you're tying your cannabis to positive behavior, you know, how, how is that abuse, right? So if you're using cannabis with the intention of exercising and you're getting off the couch and you're going running, that sounds really healthy to me. And the running is going to increase your endorphins and your serotonin and, and have you feeling better. Um, if you're going to sit on the couch and smoke cannabis to relax, well, be intentional about that. Utilize your cannabis, realizing why you're using it to go into that state. So conscious use prevents misuse. It's the unconscious use where people are just smoking, inhaling, consuming, and not tying it to anything positive. That, that's negative. So you can misuse cannabis. But the difference between cannabis and other drugs of abuse is I've seen people misuse heroin, alcohol, amphetamine. I've seen people misuse everything, but I haven't seen them shift maladaptive cocaine use into positive cocaine use, right? I've never seen anyone shift their heroin into healthy use. But I have seen people who really abuse cannabis or misuse cannabis that can shift that to healthy patterns of use. So just because someone does misuse cannabis, unlike other drugs or medicines, they don't have to quit their cannabis. They can change how they use it for more positivity. So it's really about being intentional and conscious about your use and not just being brain dead about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that as as some guidelines because I think personally I can't imagine using cannabis and then going for a run. But but what I can do and what I do notice is I have better experiences if I do go in with an intention. Like, okay, I'm going to smoke this joint and then I'm going to um, listen to this CD. Uh, or see, well, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna listen to this whole album, this whole track, or this whole DJ set, and I'm gonna really pay attention to the music. Or I'm gonna watch this movie, and I really want to pay attention to the colors. But, but I think setting some sort of intention on using it can, can make those experiences not only more intentional, but, but also just more powerful and more interesting and more dynamic. Like you get more out of it than if you're just, you know. Smoking a spliff, having a beer, like if you're kind of combining all these things, but there's no real intention behind the use, it just, you know, it it, it just all blurs together. And I, I don't necessarily feel personally that I get that much out of it. Totally. And that's where if we can get people, like if we can get this shift in, in, in thinking about how we use plant medicines, right? So instead of thinking about using these things to party or get high or numb out, if we can get our youth to think about using these substances to improve themselves. I recently spoke at a class at CU and um, 
the, the students were just blown away about the idea of utilizing what they thought of as drugs, I reframed as medicines, as, as wellness tools, right? So, but if you can get people to look at these things as tools for wellness and not drugs of abuse and get them using that, that's going to raise consciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are your thoughts on um, combining alcohol and cannabis? And I ask just because it's extremely common um, in social situations, but 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 what are the you know what are the effects of that and what do we what do we lose when we do combine alcohol with yuck with yuck <laughs> you're taking the beauty of cannabis and and the uh, healthful aspects of cannabis and you are numbing them down right so mm-hmm. you're you're stopping the the psychoactive creativity and enhancement that comes with cannabis and you're numbing that down with alcohol and then you're increasing the intoxicant effects. Mm-hmm. So you're making it more dangerous to drive. You're not going to be able to 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 work or cre- or produce at an executive level the way that you can with with cannabis alone. So again, where cannabis can be thought of as a smart drug, alcohol is not. And when you combine alcohol with cannabis, you're dumbing down the experience. Yeah, and I think it is really important to to make that to make that distinction because I I think some of the some of the research that has been done that that shows a danger of abuse with with cannabis they're not necessarily able to separate cannabis use and alcohol use um, so 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 you're not really getting an accurate representation of how cannabis affects the brain or or affects decision making um, because so often it, it's blurred with other substances. Or and or nicotine, for instance, too, right? That's oh, also yeah. uh, affect the negatively the positive effects of cannabis. Could you speak to that for a moment? Because I I do know I do know a lot of people who who do prefer spliffs or you, you know I think there's there's some science behind the the burning temperature of the cannabis when it's combined with tobacco that makes it more pleasant. I don't know if this is real research. This is just kind of things people have told me. So, so can you speak about how the nicotine does affect cannabis? Yeah, I, I mean, people. So I, I know people who they like spliffs, but they're addicted to nicotine. They only smoke their cannabis with tobacco, really, because they need that tobacco fix. They have an addiction to nicotine, and and they're getting a fix out of that, and and that's why they're combining it. Um, you know, chemically, when you act on your nicotinic receptors, are, are you increasing your attention somewhat? Yes. So you do see people with ADHD with a higher proclivity to mix nicotine and cannabis together uh, to increase focus. But again, you're going to get an anxious response out of nicotine. I think people think that it's calming, but when you look at the physiologic markers of what occurs with nicotine consumption, it's actually making you more anxious. So again, it's going to be kind of negating the effects uh, by acting on your nicotinic receptors uh, at the same time you're acting on your endocannabinoid receptors, you're kind of canceling each other out. So please stop smoking sm- spliffs with can- with uh, tobacco in them. They're not good for you. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you know about um, the effects of nicotine on, on psychosis, or especially patients with schizophrenia? I have heard that there can be some sort of like healing. It does. Nicotine is cut. Yeah. I mean, so if you look at schizophrenics, uh, not as much now because tobacco has gone up in price. But like when I did my training and tobacco is really cheap, oftentimes schizophrenics would be smoking multiple packs a day. There is a calming uh, of psychosis with nicotine. If you look at the activity of many of the antipsychotics, they do act on the nicotinic receptors. An unfortunate side effect of nicotine, though, is it increases the clearance of antipsychotics, meaning when schizophrenics smoke cigarettes, they need higher doses of antipsychotics to work the same, which kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing, something that's really interesting is talking about psychosis or schizophrenia and cannabis. Yeah, could you speak to that? Yeah, so there's there's this you know this belief and contraindication that you know you can't use cannabis if you're psychotic, and it can increase psychosis. And yes, it can, and it can be a risk. And again, like let's get back where I started at the beginning: listening to your patients. 
So when you have someone who's psychotic or has schizophrenia or a psychotic illness, what if they're using cannabis? And, and what if cannabis is, is helping them? Why won't we listen to their subjective experience and honor that? But psychiatrists get very dogmatic, and I think you have to, to look at everything. Because think about the calming aspect that can come out of cannabis. Mm. And so if someone is calmer and more stable, they're less likely to have psychotic reactions. Mm. I'm not saying that cannabis should be given for schizophrenia. I'm just saying let's, let's have an open mind and look at it before we say absolutely not. It's like giving people with bipolar disorder antidepressants. We know that there's a risk of creating mania, psychosis, or suicidality when we give people with bipolar disorder antidepressants, or the risk of suicidality when we give children antidepressants. However, we still do it because the possible benefit outweighs the, the risk sometimes. So let's let's just give cannabis a chance, man. Let's mm -hmm. not be so dogmatic about it. Have you seen cannabis have positive effects on patients with psychosis or schizophrenia? Oh yeah, okay. 100%. Mm -hmm. um, so it can be affected. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, they're on antipsychotics as well. Uh, these guys, but cannabis is the medication that holds it together for them because it's that stress. They use cannabis to treat that stress. And if they're less stressed, the voices aren't as loud. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to act on their voices. They're less likely to need to go to the hospital. They can use cannabis as an as needed medication to calm them down. So a hundred percent, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. As well as I have schizophrenics who don't use cannabis. It's not a good thing to use cannabis. It's bad for them, right? But it's a spectrum. Right. Yeah, and it's just how do you, I, I think the, the risk there is just how do you evaluate that? And it's very different if a patient comes in and says, hey, I've been using cannabis and it's the only thing that's helped me versus making that recommendation for someone experiencing yeah. psychosis that, and say you know recommending that to them that's that's a, another one that i would be very reticent to to to, to say all right you're having psychosis you should try this um that's not not sure how to that 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 situation has not presented it, it, itself yet Fortunate, fortunately, and and I can't imagine a situation where just for psychosis, I would recommend that. Now, if you look at psychosis, though, we have had some studies where CBD has been shown to decrease psychosis in schizophrenics, and that hasn't been a place where I've started it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I wonder too. I mean, there's more and more research coming out about other cannabinoids found in in the cannabis plant beyond just THC and CBD. Oh. So I wonder 100%. if there is, you know, once we can start breeding for these other cannabinoids, maybe there is something within the plant. Love CBN. I am so yeah. thrilled with CBN. Um, <laughs> it's, it's efficacy as a, as a sleep product uh, without psychoactivity is just incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm excited to see kind of as we do, as we do hear more about these other cannabinoids. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be excited to, to talk to you again and see what, you know, what, what other options are there beyond, because just the focus has been on THC and CBD for so long, but, but uh, I think Infancy, there probably right? are other, other cannabinoids that could help. Well, and that's why when we talk about full spectrum, right? So why don't just the molecules work as well as full spectrum because there's that uh, and get, get back to what makes that psychedelic experience with those different combinations we give right because like you said there are so many different cannabinoids it's not just about thc and cbd but there's it's about the hundreds if not thousands com different components of the plant that we don't even know yet because we're so early in this science Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So while we're on this topic, I have one final question for you, and uh, I want to know what is the next frontier for you, and what what kind of work or, or research would you like to do through your practice, or well, what would you like to 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 learn o over the next, let's say, five to ten years of your work? 
I would I would like to show the efficacy of psychedelics as treatments for addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then hopefully changing how uh, addiction treatment is carried out in the world. So really incorporating psychedelic medicine into the treatment of addictions and mm-hmm. mental illness. And do you see other other substances becoming part of your practice? I know you said psilocybin is on, you know, potentially on the new frontier for psychotherapists as well as MDMA. Would you see yourself practicing with, with these as well? So I believe in, in the psychedelic model uh, mm-hmm. of, of psychedelic psychotherapy. And I am just really pleased to be able to use whatever molecule my jurisdiction allows me to, because I believe it's about the psychedelic process less than actual which medicine they're taking. Uh, But the ability for whichever medicine it is to open up your consciousness and allow you to, to cut through your neuroses and your defense mechanism and see something that you never would have allowed yourself to see. And and so I'm not as excited about the different molecules as I am just to, to be able to, to do this at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been involved with psychedelics for 30 years. And now that as a physician, legally, I can do this with, with my he- head above uh, the ground. Yeah, so I don't care if it's ketamine, cannabis, psilocybin. But I'm, I'm just so pleased that we can do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I know. I think it's an exciting future. And yes, it is not so much. They're all just different molecules. But but really, it is this whole, it's the same. It's the practice that we, we've talked inter- about through this. The integration, right? Yes, so, integration. And that's what DMT, cannabis, whatever it is, it's you doing that conscious work every day that's going to get you better. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's, you know, to, to end with just that, that need for integration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge and your, your wisdom and all of this, you know, your 30 years of experience. So I'm really excited to share this with our listeners. You're welcome. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.